Hi all, and welcome back to a great episode of the European VC, your go-to podcast for insights into European VC. We're happy to introduce you to Vinoth Jayakuma, partner at Draper Esprit, one of Europe's most active VC firms. They were first founded in 2006 and now manage more than a billion euros. They've made more than 125 investments and have created more than 5 billion in returns for their investors. And maybe most interestingly, they're publicly traded. At Draper Esprit, Vinoth focuses the future of finance, insurance, fintech, prop tech, and cybersecurity. He's interested in all of it. But what gets him truly excited is companies that aren't afraid of targeting the whole stack of financial products and services. No easy pickings for Vinner. And don't forget, if you'd like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to David or Andreas through LinkedIn or at the European VC. And if you love our show, do make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Also, if you're about to raise an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors in the European VC community. Hacken Hustle's launching the second cohort of their first fundraise accelerator program. Tailor made for European first time founders about to raise their pre seed or seed round. In 10 weeks, founders learn directly from European VC champions while they build and execute on a no BS fundraise prep that will secure them their next round of financing fast. It's up or out. If founders don't keep up the pace, they're kicked. So participation and progress is ensured for the most ambitious teams. Invite founders in your network to visit hackhustle.co and apply to get connected to the European VC. Welcome to the show, Vinith. Amazing to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited. I've listened to quite a few of your episodes. I'm glad to be in the uh, company of friends. You definitely are, Vinith. I was actually about to say, let's start right now on a topic, but I would first like to just say, would you just introduce yourself a bit more than we just did? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Vinod. I'm a partner here at Draper Esprit. Draper Esprit is a slightly later stage technology venture capital fund based in London, investing across the whole of Europe. We're looking to back uh, European founders with global ambition. One of the unique things about us is we took the unusual step of IPOing our fund about five and a half years ago. And as a result of the IPO, we shifted our model from a fund-based model to a balance sheet-based model, which is typically a very long-term outlook in terms of how we invest. That means we've got a patient capital fund and we're looking to create very large long-term outcomes. And off the back of this balance sheet, we have been investing into frontier leaders in the fintech space, You know, some of the assets we're involved with. Uh, companies like Revolut, N26, previously with TransferWise. More recently, we've been doing a lot more into B2B fintech and infrastructure software, things like core banking systems with Thought Machine or payments with Form 3, and more recently, Fintech OS uh, out of Romania. That's awesome. And we are going to be jumping a lot more into the anatomy of Derby Esprit. So all of you out there are thinking, okay, so an IPO fund, what's it all about? that. We'll get much more into that. Don't worry, guys. But first, Vinith, I know that you have, as any VC investor with a passion for fintech, of course, you also are probably amongst the ones with the biggest passion for what's going on in the industry. And as such, these are interesting days. We're seeing big, big, big ass companies like Target Global <laughs> coming in, really changing up the game. And on the other hand, we're seeing the rise of micro funds, micro VCs really changing it from the bottom. So we're seeing a lot of interesting uh, developments and something we hadn't expected to see before. So Vinith, the floor is yours. What do you think about all of this? That's a big question to start with, but here are some interesting thoughts. So certainly what we have seen in the last 12 months is what I call the concept of the world sort of flattening slightly. And what I mean by that is that because of COVID and lockdown and so on, everybody's living on Zoom. 
And what it has done is it's just democratized access to all entrepreneurs, to all investors around the world. So US investors are on Zoom calls with European entrepreneurs. The same is happening with Singapore. The same is happening in Hong Kong. So what we're seeing is a concentration of capital trying to find its way to the best assets in the market. So there's a flight to quality as opposed to quantity, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Tiger Global is one of the Tiger Cups. They're not the only ones that are active in Europe. There was also Co2 that has done a few deals in Europe. Then there's a long list. There's D1 Capital Partners. There's Addition. All of them are deploying money in Europe at the moment. Tiger Global has probably been the most aggressive from what I have seen across a few deals. The speed at which they make deals happen and the valuations with which they get them done at. And frankly, it's forced us to rethink how we actually think about what we do. And in some ways, you know, there is always a question as to why would another investor be willing to pay a significantly higher price and be able to execute a deal at a much faster pace than any other investor? Right? There's no difference in the asset or the, or the founders that we're exactly investing in. What is different, though, is the speed of conviction. And so if you understand how a particular market is going to travel, say, for example, more recently, one of the biggest deals and the fastest deals to create a unicorn in Europe is probably a company called Hopin, which is an online event. You know, the company within sort of something like eight months of going live had crossed the billion dollar mark. I can't remember the exact milestones, but it's already hit the, I believe in the last round, it's hit the $5 billion mark with Andreessen Horowitz coming in. Tiger Global got involved pretty much earlier than that in the chain. But also before that, our friends at IVP had come in with a pretty highly valued large Series A. Probably shouldn't disclose the valuation and so on, but it's tempting to think that it's quite easy to kind of pick the winners. But actually what investors are doing is, again, going back to my point about value accretion, you can see the direction of travel of a particular market. You can see that events are going to happen in a different format than they do how they've done historically. You can also see what incumbents have done in the market. Cvent was one of the largest companies. It had been a private equity buy-in, buy-out. I think it had, at some point had even been a public company. But then none of it had truly innovated the product to the level where, at which it needs to be to truly work in a hybrid world or work in an online-only format. And Hopin jumped in and created that product that everybody was looking for. You know, and mm -hmm. so suddenly... Huge acceleration in this one single asset. They then grew with a bit of M&A. And now it's you know, more than a $5 billion value asset with Tiger Global involved. Now, one other interesting observation is also the fact that what you are doing when you give someone a really high valuation is you're transferring some of your gains to them. And I think essentially what you're doing is if you have determined that there is an asset that is winning in a particular industry, then you are just value shifting to be able to do the deal at a quicker pace and to be the winner in that deal. So you are basically saying, I'm willing to give up X percent of my gains in the interest of making sure I am in the asset. And so the acceleration of the asset means my fund grows. And then the speed at which that capital gets redeployed is quicker because now the asset's got more money. It's got it at the valuation that it could take it at because in part, you know, you need the high enough valuation to take the dilution of a very large round so that the founders continue to be motivated to create a big business. But it's also got onto a quicker cadence at which point, you know, a Tiger Global can raise funds on an annual cycle, as opposed to a five, six year cycle. So it is about deployment into category winning assets. Would you care to comment on the fact, because I found it a bit surprising, on the fact that they've opted for such a hands-off approach by even externalizing the value add to the portfolio companies. And so it seems to me, you know, <laughs> as a, a very uh, kind of wannabe guy in the industry, that they're double downing on their ability to really find the winners? I'd love to hear your thoughts about the fact that they kind of completely have that hands-off approach. This is an interesting one because a few of the quote-unquote Tiger Cup funds are interacting with some of my portfolio companies. 
And the sell is the fact that they will be hands-off in terms of how the company is run, but they will not be hands-off in terms of how they will add value to the company, if that makes sense. So they don't want to get in the way of knowing what needs to be done next. And I think if you shifted it, essentially what the funds are saying is that this is empowerment capital. You as the entrepreneur and the founder know the journey you need to be on. What you need is the capital to accelerate what you're going to do. Now, if you need help in opening certain kinds of doors or looking for access to certain kinds of markets, we can do that in a completely offline fashion. And I contrast that with some of the other companies in the market who want, quote unquote, handholding, you know, who want the guidance, who want to figure out, you know, what kind of scaling challenges will I have? How do I recruit this kind of person? How do I build a team? Do I think about the design of my organization? There's the, you know, the so-called Spotify model and various different models, which is now popularized also by Atlassian. There are lots of different ways in which you can think about what the value add looks like. Now, the issue is in each one of those pieces of the value add, whether that's in recruitment or organizational design or compensation or go-to-market or scaling, there is a plethora of providers in the world who specialize in just that one vertical, right? So to suggest that one particular fund or any individual could be the master of all of those things, I would think is false. What I would think is more true is if you are the conduit and the connector to the people and the organizations that can do that. For example, we've got some companies now doing deep dive sales team organizational work with a few well-known consultants in the UK market, right? And, and these are people who are trained and designed to think about what sales teams need to look like inside versus outbound sales designing what the compensations need to look like, designing what quota bearing heads need to look like, how do they perform against their quota. All these things need to be constantly tinkered with. And it's very hard for a single VC or a VC fund to know that. What I believe Tiger and Kotu are doing is they are decentralizing it. They're just saying, mm -hmm. we do capital allocation really well. Everything else will help you find it, as opposed to us doing it for you. And Vinith, I'm sure you're talking about this inside Draper Esprit, maybe just recently also around the water cooler and in actual meeting rooms. The, the proverbial water cooler. I haven't been around <laughs> yeah. in a long time. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've all been missing it. What are your thoughts? Because that's not your model. No, it's 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 not. Our, yeah, it's, it, it hasn't been our model and I don't believe it will ever be our model. But what I do believe, though, is I believe in founder empowerment. In every new investment that I go into, I will always have a heart-to-heart -heart with the founder because this is not a transaction. It is a relationship and I am investing out of a balance sheet. And by definition, I'm talking about a really long partnership where I'm going to be deploying capital all the way through your journey, possibly even up to pre-IPO stage. And if I am going to do that, I think we need to think about what a partnership looks like because I would also like my founders to know that I am not the answer to all their questions. But what I will be is the best and ideally the ultimate conduit to the answers. You know, there are many answers which are pretty standard around the market. You know, yeah. the good things that VCs do well are things around sort of organizing the equity story. You know, when do you fundraise? How do you do it? How do you push the valuation up or down? You know, how do you structure the financials to tell the story you want to tell? At the same time, how do you paint a vision? Are you building a category winning company? And what is the category you're winning in? Right? Are you evangelizing the solution or are you evangelizing the problem? There are category design questions that I think become interesting to a founder that our VC can be really good at doing. But at the same time, you know, your, your question is, will we ever do hands-off investing? I don't think we will. I do use an analogy with my founders quite a lot. I do tell them that I believe that we're on a journey and I believe that this feels like a car and that you will be always in the driving seat. Your hands will always be on the steering wheel. Every now and again, I might be in the front seat next to you. Sometimes I'm in the back seat. Sometimes I'm outside the car. But my goal is to remind you, are we building a Ferrari or are we building a Ford? Because I have my eyes and lenses all over the world. You know, Draper has a presence in, in, in many parts of the world. There are funds in Singapore and 
Japan and the US and so on. And I'm constant contact with all my partners around the world. And so I can tell you, like, you know, th this is the evolution of payments in the Singaporean exchange versus what's happening in Australia, whereas we are looking at the European landscape, right? Mm. And so for me, it's just this concept of, uh, of reminding you that I'm here to help you in your journey and I'm never going to touch the steering wheel. I'm curious because when I think about the ecosystem where I'm at, Portugal, it's been reaching new heights. It's been, uh, been quite some hype and buzz around it. And the fact of the matter, at least my opinion, is that that's mostly due to some players and some institutions having done very strategic investing in building capacity in the ecosystem. I think we, we owe it to that. And now we're starting to reap the benefits of that as an ecosystem where we have experienced founders who've kind of been through it. You know, we start having that knowledge in the ecosystem. A more hands-off approach by funds, won't it privilege more kind of experienced founding teams versus first-time founding teams that they actually need the hand-holding because, you know, it's the first time, <laughs> right? They really need that support. You're right. And I think what you're pointing to is that kind of capital is not for everyone. Yeah. There are companies that execute so well that all they really need is more gas in the tank. You know, one of my portfolio companies, Revolut, it's just it's executing so well across yeah. various different countries in the world. What it really needs is execution fuel, as yeah. it were, right? But if you are, I mean, do it. <laughs> and the freedom to do it. But also, I mean, I think it's it's relevant for us to talk about the stage at which you're fundraising. You know, it's yeah. more likely that if you are a seed company or a Series A company, you will need guidance around sort of governance and growth and scale and you know some of the basic challenges around recruiting the right people to the organization. You know, when you go from a seed to a Series A company, you're likely to go from a five, ten person outfit to a 25, 50 person outfit. Yeah. You know, it does look different, but you you will still know everyone by name. Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Then you go from the A to the B and the B is like 100 and 150 people. It starts to become a little bit more institutionalized, right? Now, as you go through that journey, the guidance you may receive from a great funder, it could be a venture capitalist, could be a private equity fund, could it could be anyone, is hugely helpful, you know? And at the same time, you can also have that help without that investor needing to take a board seat on your board. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're an LP in a fund called Seacamp based in London. Yeah. And they, I mean, they're amazing at picking out unicorns in Europe. And they don't take board seats, but they have a network in the back end, which they activate it with very good efficiency to create value for all their founders, not just single founders. So they have a kind of a paid forward model inside of their network baked in, you know, and, and Reshma and Carlos who run the fund are, are excellent at leveraging that for their founders. So you don't have to be on the board as it were. I'm curious because now we talked about Tiger Global in the, uh, and the likes the Tiger Cups in the late stages, and then we have I talked to Alexander Covello today. You might know him. He talked about the squeeze that you have around the traditional VCs where you have the Tiger Globals coming in on the top and then you have the micro VCs, solo VCs in the bottom. And that's going to create problems for the traditional VCs. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I guess overall, the word is what I call scope creep. Anyone who were doing what they used to do before are either going higher or lower, wherever the activity takes them. I think if you look at some of the larger funds, they're also becoming completely multi-stage. You know, Lightspeed's a multi-stage fund, Sequoia's a multi-stage fund. Increasingly, Draper is free are going to be slightly more multi-stage. We've historically done Series A and B really well. We're now going slightly more Series C rounds. We're launching a growth fund. Long-term, we may even go more later stage. You know, I don't want to speak out of turn yet, but it's, it's <laughs> the point is that we, we are thinking about sort of what kind of capital you need to have at the right point in time for founders. Now, on the bottom, not the bottom end, but the early end of the, of the spectrum, you've got the so-called solo GPs, you've got the empowered angel networks, as it were, 
and I'm seeing much more competition creep into the market from that. I mean, for example, there was a payments deal in the Netherlands. This is about two years ago. I believe it was a 20 million Series A. And as opposed to taking any money from the VCs, the company took the 20 million from 20 individuals. I presume that the value from the 20 individuals who I think on average, I guess, put in a million dollars each. If you can afford to put in a million dollars each, you're likely to have been a reasonably successful entrepreneur in some right. Your value add to that one founder from 20 people is significantly higher. You know, and in some ways, some of the Tiger Cubs, uh, one of them is a fund called Beat Edge Capital. They have actually raised, I believe it was 500 million from 500 individuals. The 500 individuals are like Fortune 500 CEOs and XXX of really big tech companies and that kind of stuff. So the value add immediately for people who know how to do this stuff is valuable. You know, and in that instance, you don't need handholding. You just need real-time impact. Yeah. There's one thing I've been dying to know your opinion on, and I'm shifting topics, but it's also about trends and and the state of affairs. In the Nordics particularly, I haven't seen it down here, down south. I'm starting to hear a lot of founders talk about mini IPOs or whatever that word means. So smaller stock exchanges where they go in and they IPO to get the equivalent to what in Euro terms would be, I would say, seed or maybe series A in some cases. I'm very confused about this first and foremost. And then secondly, (laughs) I'd love to know what you think about it in terms of how it affects the funding path of these companies. I don't know specifically what you refer to by mini IPOs, but I do know in the UK context, we have two exchanges. There's the main market and the aim market. And on the AIM market, you can list relatively smaller companies. You know, for example, I think I'm not exactly sure the parameters for the cutoff, but I think you can list a company that has crossed 10 or 15 million in revenue. So you don't have to be big at all to go public. The only thing you really got to think about is going public is a completely different beast. You know, and this is the challenge that early stage companies are facing with SPACs. You know, having to go from a private market environment to a public market environment there's totally different pressures. I mean, we know that firsthand because we IPO'd our fund. You know, the level of the look-through, the level of reporting, the level of governance. It doesn't mean that a private fund doesn't have all these things or a private company doesn't have all these things. It's just that it does not have to have it in such a productized format as we do. You know, like we would need investor relations as a function. You know, historically, that might have just been the CFO yeah. talking to investors, right? Now you need two people and you've got to do analyst calls and you've got to do quarterly updates and it creates a cycle of, of chasing a particular kind of outcome. And I'm not sure I'm necessarily encouraging any company to IPO quicker or do a mini IPO of any kind. I would say that every type of capital has its upsides and downsides. And I would consider you know, what kind of capital accelerates your outcome. Right? At the end of the day, it is about maximizing the outcome, but the outcome that you want. Not every company wants to raise money from much capital funds. Not every company wants to IPO. I think it's thinking about the kind of scale you want to go to and, and what kind of capital you already have on your capital. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe even if let's continue down the vein of IPOs <laughs> here and touch on the subject that we've mentioned a million times already, the IPO of Draper Esprit. Could you just talk us through what is this about? How does it affect your operations? What were your thoughts back then, if you know them? And what are you seeing now? And why don't we see more doing it? Well, actually, we are seeing an increasing number of funds IPO, actually. The origin story of our IPO is from our two founders, Simon Cook and Stuart Chapman. They were both venture capitalists at a well-known UK and global investor at the time, a, a fund called 3i Ventures. Mm-hmm. 3i was a public listed entity and they understood what patient capital meant. They understood the acceleration of capital and the recycling of capital pretty well. So while Simon and Stuart had learned how to do that as a VC within a patient capital institution about, I want to say probably about 30 years ago, don't want to date them too much, but <laughs> it's, it, it, you know, they had learned how to do this first hand from there. And as we had set up ourselves in 2006, 
we actually started out by weaving together a group of secondaries, bringing together a few funds that we bought out and then ran as a result. And the biggest one of that combination was 3i. So we actually bought out 3i Ventures and we still own and run it today. Now, as a result of being involved with a, a large transaction like that, we've noticed that some of the winning assets in the, in, in the portfolio take much longer in time to actually generate the real value in the assets. And so what you want to be able to do is within a normal fund model is to be able to stay the race. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, the, the, some of the great funds, the iconic funds like, like Sequoia and so on, they may have raised a 10-year fund, but they're likely to be in, I don't know, year 15, 16 of those funds because they're in great assets. And so the LPs are saying, don't sell, just stay. Now, if you're in a normal 2 and 20, 10-year fund, you'd be spending the first five years investing and the second five years harvesting. As you get to your harvesting period, you will sort of need to show a return to be able to raise the next fund, right? And so you come up against this crunch, which is artificial. It's against some window that no entrepreneur cares about because they're only just building their business, right? Now, what happens there is you have this inefficiency. And I think this is where you create a trade-off either for the managers of the fund or the entrepreneurs who have money from these funds that actually doesn't help them optimize for the size of the company that they're in. So in some ways, it creates an opportunity for us. We have done, you know, in a similar vein to have done the secondary transactions early in the life of Draper Esprit. At the time, we were DFJ, DFJ Esprit. We more recently, about two years ago, did a transaction with Seedcamp, as I mentioned earlier on, where we went in to acquire their interest in fund one and two. And that was in part because they were the end of the life of their funds. They wanted to be able to continue to support their entrepreneurs. So what we did is a deal where we acquired the interest in the funds, but we also set aside capital to be able to double down. So it meant that the same managers managed to stay in contact with the same assets, and we provide the capital to continue accelerating, right? So we kind of unlocked the window, as it were. There are many other reasons for listing a fund, one of which is this concept of permanent capital, which is that, you know, the money that you raise and you invest in companies, when you have a return, that capital stays on your balance sheet. It doesn't go anywhere else. In a normal fund, it goes back to the LPs until the capital is paid up, and then you get carry, and then there's potentially super carry, and then you might split the difference. Different funds have different ways of doing it. But in a listed fund model, you will receive all the capital from an exit, and then you can redeploy. So you have net asset value growth, but also net asset value acceleration as these exits take place. In some ways, there's a flywheel effect. You invest in great companies, they grow big, they exit, and the cash comes back, and then you keep doing more and more of it, and the wheel gets bigger and bigger. I'm curious, do you run the same, not the 2 and 20, of course, but are you able to take 20% carry? We don't really disclose carry models and so on, but We have a slightly nuanced way of thinking about it, in part because we are a public fund. So we structure carried interest with normal carry, but less of normal carry and a little bit of options because we have the ability to do that, create stock options for for the partners. We don't really do fees, we just do costs. So our our goal is to just keep our our cost of the team down, keep the cost of running our business down, and all the capital that's on our balance sheet is to be invested into companies. Benneth, I don't know the funding story of Draper Spree, but if you look at the growth of the assets under management for Draper Spree versus some of the other very successful funds, would you say that this has allowed Draper Spree to grow faster? Absolutely. I mean, it's allowed us significant acceleration, but do not forget the fundamental point. The fundamental point is finding and investing in the top and the best entrepreneurs in Europe. And your ability to stay the race is what enables you to reap the rewards. So the focus is always on how do we find the next Nikolai and Revolut? How do we find the next Arnand and Bribery bid? Those are the thoughts that are in our minds. 
Now, in terms of the structure of our capital, the acceleration comes about in part because you, you start to see some of the returns coming back and then the balance sheet starts to grow and you can keep redeploying that money. We are, I think today at 1.3 billion in AUM. We're investing roughly about 150 to 200 million a year in every single year. So that has definitely grown significantly from back when we were founded. Back then, a Series A might have been at 3 million on 10 or 15 million free, right? And now I'm in the middle of doing Series A's that are 25, 30 million in our check alone. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's definitely been an acceleration in size of tickets we're investing and the speed at which we're investing. Maybe just because this is the elephant in the room everywhere <laughs> and the valuations are skyrocketing. People are starting to talk about whether when all these privately held companies need to IPO or need to become liquid at some point for the investment. Will anyone be able to pay that? <laughs> will they be able to sustain their valuation if they IPO? Or will any bigger players be ready to acquire them at that valuation? What are your views on that? Do you see a lot of companies where you're thinking, nah, this is out of this world. This company can in no way sustain the valuation growth that they're on? So I, it goes back to one of the original points I made about value accretion. When we think about outcomes in a particular industry, we tend to be biased towards thinking about what has happened before. And you will be encumbered by what has happened before. If you think about what has happened before, let's use online events as an example. You will think of Cvent as probably best in class. You will read their equity story. You will figure out what multiples they've created at publicly and how they got taken private. And you will say, even if you did that two, three X better, it's still an okay, reasonable outcome. And then incomes hop in and it just blows everything out of the water, right? And you start to think about actually, why is that true? Has it changed the narrative for what it does? So now increasingly actually up it is replacing Zoom events. Right? It's replacing internal company communications. So maybe it's not just about online events, it's all things humans connecting with other humans, right? Suddenly that I've just changed the size of the TAM by just using different words. But the point I'm making is that is how founders with great visions create big businesses. So you've got to understand where you are on that curve and whether you know where you're paying for that curve. Investors in the private markets are generally paying up for growth. The question is by how much? You know, a, a market standard software as a service business, call it five years ago, was probably getting something like a seven to a 10x multiple on ARR. Today, that very same multiple is anywhere between 15 and 25x. Yeah. And what are you really doing? The difference between the 7 and the 25 is that the round sizes have gone up. So the valuations have to go up to accommodate. But also because the valuations have gone up and the round sizes have gone up, you have a much longer runway. question is, do you burn it soon enough to, to get higher growth if you have the ROI on the burn? Or do you have the capital to create a moat around you such that you can continue to build a big business and you figure out different parts as opposed to growth? So I think that points to where in the paradigm you are as to what kind of valuation you might pay. I want to step back to what I feel like calling the strategic advantage of you guys being able to be more patient, <laughs> basically. Uh, yeah. You don't have that time pressure there. Do you see it as allowing you to seize trends or specific verticals in a better way than let's call the traditional 10 years plus two years extension? Yes, absolutely. There are some sectors, for example, we're investing more and more heavily into deep tech, which has a very, very long yield cycle from build to launch to yeah. scale. One of our largest companies is a company called Graphcore, which is in chips for AI. I believe now that is probably more than 10 years that we've been involved with the, with the company. And we're seeing more and more of that there. So we're able to take bets into areas that historically flipped capital as they grew, and we can kind of stay the journey. Deep tech is one of it. We're also seeing areas within FinTech where the sales cycles are very long. For example, in enterprise software to banks, where sales cycles can be as long as 24 up to 36 months. We're able to kind of stay the journey on those things. Yes, you can. 
<laughs> but uh, the rest of the ecosystem can't. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, it, it, that's strictly speaking, that's not actually true because we have the crossover funds coming into enterprise software companies. If I use a real-time example, fault machine, call banking systems, long sales cycle, but very large outcome. The two funds involved more recently is ourselves, Draper Esprit, and then another fund called Eurasio. Eurasio is also a public listed fund, so they've got a patient capital vehicle. So we are seeing much more of an interaction between investors who are able to kind of think really, really long-term. Now, long-term is obviously not long-term for just the sake of being long-term. You know, <laughs> it's it's you need to know that there is a certain value accretion taking place in the business. What long-term allows you to do is if the J-curve is not quite as steep, and if it's a little bit flatter, you're okay to stay the journey because you still believe in the vision. That's the difference. Yeah, yeah. Out of nowhere, MIT's fund the engine. Do you know them? I don't know them personally, no. Yeah, just curious because that's another player who are doing on what they call tough tech and deep tech, the very, very research grounded work that needs the very, very patient capital. That's where they're focusing. And I was just curious if you were kind of seeing the same development in Europe that we're seeing more funds going towards these areas that just require the patient capital and then the funds that actually manage to either as you explained Sequoia and Reason being able to stay the journey just because even though they are from the outside on a 10-year fund cycle, they aren't. Are you seeing funds in Europe acting the same way as well? The honest answer to that is from the perspective of the entrepreneur. If you are a winning company with significant growth building into a existing or even a new category, and it looks like you maybe crowned the king, take for example, Revolut, then the kind of capital that becomes involved with the business becomes less relevant because it's only the quality of the funds that are being involved that matters, right? So you may have a small check, high value VC fund. You may have a, a larger listed fund like us. You may also have a, a normal fund like Bond run by Mary Meeker, spun out of Kleiner Perkins involved with the revenue. If you look at the mix of that, at the end of the day, like I said, the, the driver is the entrepreneur and the business that they're building. So I, I think everyone will stretch themselves to do a deal that is a breakout deal in any format they want to. The only thing is in the beginning of the journey, it can be very difficult. All you can see is this is going to take a damn long time. And for that reason, I'm out as a normal VC. And I was just curious whether you're seeing some funds taking those bets because they know that they can stay the journey. I think the answer to that is a little bit more nuanced, Andreas, yeah. in part because there are funds that specialize in doing specific kinds of things. For example, for a long time, you've had and you still have IP commercialization organizations. Some of them have been listed. You know, IP Group is one of them. Allied Finds is another one of them. And these are listed. And as a result, they are investing out of a balance sheet. So they have a patient capital model too, right? But they're very focused on commercializing IP out of the university. We are an LP in a fund called IQ Capital based in Cambridge. It's arguably the UK's top deep tech fund. And they're in a novel 10-year fund, but they have been part of really, really large, big outcomes. The way they stay the journey is they're able to kind of build SPVs that kind of continue the journey with the company. So like I said, you know, when you have a great asset, everybody finds a way to stay the race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're running almost out of time, but there's something that I really want to talk with you about. I've heard you say that, and forgive me for not using the exact words, but something around you like working with other managers and understanding how to look at ESG in a more strategic way rather than a box ticking exercise. I'd love for you to talk to us a bit about that. And from where I'm sitting, from my perspective, it's very confusing sometimes, you know, what is ESG and VC? What is impact investing? Are these the same thing? I don't believe so, but I'd love to hear your take on these two topics. You know, the, the first point in your question was about working with other managers. And it, it just made me think of something interesting. So I, I 
I went for a run earlier on and I listened to the episode you did with Nico Zedadara. Yeah. He's, a, he's a really good friend and we're an LP in his fund. Awesome. And then a couple of episodes ago, you did it with Stefan at yeah. Indico. We're also an LP in his fund. Yeah. Now, I just wanted to point that out because I think... Stefan actually did the intro. So thank you, Stefan, for the intro to Vinit. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go, right? Part of the reason that was enabled was because of our IPO structure. We set up 100 million separate to our main investing fund to become an LP in these funds. And I think as of today, we're an LP in about 45 different funds yeah. who are specializing in different parts of the market. Now, speaking of ESG, there are two ongoing strands of thinking and work internally within Trade for Spree. The first is our own ESG thesis. And so we've signed up to some of the UN standards for how we need to think about it. We are taking a stance that we're thinking about ESG at a very broad level. So sometimes people ask us about diversity and inclusion. And actually, we do that as part of ESG, as opposed to just DNI on its own. We do it as part of all our overall ESG thesis. The second strand of work I mentioned earlier on is we're an LP in, as of today, I think two different funds that are in, broadly speaking, ESG, but some of them are more focused on climate, some of them focus on yeah. all things good for the universe. One of it is a fund called Astronaut Ventures, and the other one is Sophia at uh, Future Positive Capital. It's interesting because when we when we do the work with some of our funder funds and, and the GPs at these funds, we end up investing in great companies. You know, most recently, I led an investment into a company called Servest, which is a climate intelligence platform led by an amazing entrepreneur, Iggy. It's the kind of stuff that surfaces itself as a result of you being able to hone where you look and who you're talking to, as opposed to saying, we think we're the geniuses and therefore we know what we're doing. What we're saying is we are led by the entrepreneurs. We're following the entrepreneurs based on a macro level view of the world. You know, there've been a couple of things inside of ESG, specifically in climate, that have created a tipping point. You know, you had TCFD and the disclosures right off the back of that. You had the Paris Agreement a couple of years ago, yeah. and way before that, you had the Kyoto Protocol. All of these things have led us to a place where in Europe, at least, because I can't speak to the US or Asia at this point in time, but I know in Europe, you have a couple of themes. For example, carbon accounting is a theme, carbon offset is a theme, climate intelligence is a theme. And these are very broad brush strokes, but these are companies that are inventing a category within which you can sell software. It's a bit like when Salesforce came into being, I remember the saying at the time is it was the end of software yeah. because they were cloud native. I think it was 15 years ago, but the language at the time was software was on-prem. And so if you spoke a whole different language, you were able to establish a category. That is what is happening within ESG. David, to your question about the difference between impact and ESG and all of that stuff, they are all nuanced. Mm -hmm. But like I said, every fund, when it finds a really interesting company, will stretch and they will do the deal almost regardless of what their internal thesis might say. But I think on the impact point, some impact funds have specific ROI measures that they have to get back, which are non-financial. Yeah. So Draper Esprit doesn't do that yet. What we do is we're still a financial investor investing into ESG sectors, and we're still a financial return oriented investor, but we will have ESG macro level theses across the firm that we will want to be able to justify at a thesis level. On that note, we always end our episodes and, and uh, you know that <laughs> we always end it with a quick fire round. We'd love to move on into that section. Are you ready? Let's do it. Awesome. So first question, what is your best advice to emerging managers raising their first fund? And keep in mind, most of our listeners fit this profile. <laughs> Interesting. I think focus on exactly the thesis you're selling and curate and narrow your LP base quickly as opposed to spraying very widely. If you are a manager that has previously had a track record, make it clear what the track record looks like and you know work through your TDPIs and DPIs, all the usual stuff you'd normally have, but make sure they are 
referenceable. So, you know, don't associate yourself to a deal that you were never really part of, but, but, you know, be honest, be transparent and explain why your fund has a need to exist. Because we meet a lot of emerging managers and we're backing them early. You know, um, we're an LP in, in Fred Destan and Stripe, you know, that was Harry Stebbings and Fred, yeah. you know, Fred had a long history at Excel and before that Atlas, Harry, we all know about podcast. The combination of that team was amazing, right? So we had the track record plus the execution ability and then access to deals. Yeah. That's a, a clear story. So I think just making sure your story is clear and what kind of deals you're going to find and, and houses is important. Second question, what do you strongly believe in that most people around you actually do not? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's, I think it's the, it's the relentless focus on the idea of an obsession with a particular market. I don't think every investor will always agree with me on this, but Great outcomes are created by founders who are relentlessly obsessed with a particular market that they're involved with. And that reason needs to be personal. But when you travel through seed, series A, B, C, D, pre-IPO, and so on, the later stage rounds get seen as executional rounds. More capital, I know what I'm doing, let me go and do what I do. But I still think at that point, you need founder-centric obsession with a particular market, without which you may lose your vision. Third and final question, what's next for Vinith and Draft Respree? <laughs> We're continuing to grow our team. We're hiring, continuing to deploy capital into some of the best and most interesting companies in Europe. So for me personally, I'm excited to continue to build the FinTech practice at, at Draper Esprit. I think it's, historically, it's never really been a, a thing. You know, we just did. I mean, my fellow partners might disagree with me, but, you know, what we did do is we opportunistically got into the best companies in Europe. And now what we've done is we've become a little bit more vertical focused and FinTech is becoming a really large vertical for us. So the ability to double down on that, grow our team is, I think, what is next for me and Draper Spring. Awesome. Thank you for your time, Vinith. It was real fun, at least for me. We really appreciated having you on the EUVC. Amazing. I've had great fun chatting to the both of you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Vinith Yayakuma partner at Draper's Breed. If you'd like to see more from Vinith, do follow him on LinkedIn. The European VC is your go-to podcast for insights into European VC. Follow us at theeuropeanvc.com or whichever podcasting platform you prefer. If you'd like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, do reach out to us. We are always there for you.